Hello and welcome back to the Economic Review. It has certainly been a very interesting week in current affairs. After the Senate removed the minimum wage increase to $15 in the latest coronavirus relief bill, the debate over whether or not the minimum wage should be increased has gained a lot of traction. Democrats have been fighting for minimum wage increases for many years now, and many states have actually enacted minimum wage laws above the federal minimum. At first glance, a minimum wage seems like a no-brainer. After all, why wouldn't we want to protect workers from being exploited? Talking about raising the minimum wage has become so common amongst left-leaning political candidates that want to portray this image of being empathetic to the everyday American that's working at a firm and shielding them from the greed of evil corporations waiting to take advantage of them. When people talk about minimum wage increases, they often tend to forget where the money is actually coming from. If higher minimum wages actually led to more prosperity, then why not just make the minimum wage $1,000 and we can all live happily ever after? But of course, it doesn't quite work like that. To understand why a $1,000 minimum wage wouldn't work, let us first examine why an employer hires workers at all. As a general rule, for an employer to hire a worker, they have to generate more value for the company than the amount that they are paid. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for anybody to hire them. For example, if a restaurant hires a chef and he only makes $5 worth of food every hour, no employer would pay $15 an hour to hire him. He would then do one of three things. Replace him, pay him a lower wage, or eliminate the position entirely and fire him. By enacting a minimum wage, we take away an employer's ability to hire anyone that is not worth that price to the establishment. Minimum wage jobs are usually low-skilled jobs filled by younger people who are just starting in their careers. A minimum wage takes away the opportunity for young job seekers, particularly teenagers, who only seek part-time work to gain valuable experience with which to begin their careers. If you're someone whose labor is only worth $10 an hour, all of a sudden, it's impossible for you to get a job and to move up the ladder as you gain experience. The market for low-skill labor is quite large in most parts of the country, and a free market economy makes it almost impossible for employers to exploit workers, even without a minimum wage. If a worker's labor is worth $20 an hour, but an employer is only willing to pay $5 an hour due to the free market, due to the free market's competitive nature, demand for that labor would see other employers willing to offer higher wages while still remaining profitable. Eventually, the market would reach an equilibrium wage where workers are paid what they're worth. This means that the fear of corporations taking advantage of employees by paying them a meager wage is unfounded. Instead, it's just a political tool we use to garner support under the guise of empathy. In reality, a minimum wage not only alienates a portion of the labor market, but infringes on freedom of contract. If an employee and employer mutually agree on a wage, there is no reason for the government to mandate that the employee cannot accept it. Minimum wages do not prevent poverty, as most people that make the minimum wage are not poor to begin with. A study released by the Congressional Budget Office recently showed that raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025 could deliver raises for 27 million workers and lift 900,000 Americans above the poverty line. However, 
the policy would cost 1.4 million Americans their jobs, counteracting this effect. Big corporations are the ones that benefit the most from a minimum wage increase. For example, Amazon raised its minimum wage to $15 per hour and is lobbying Congress to pass a nationwide minimum wage at that amount, of course, under the guise that it will benefit the entire country. Although a large corporation like Amazon, with near-endless resources, can afford to pay all their workers this amount, other employers may not be able to do the same. A few other big corporations may be able to pay their low-skill workers this wage, but small and medium-sized enterprises, who constitute nearly half of the United States' total workforce, will largely struggle to do this, especially in rural areas where the dollar is worth much, much more. Hence, the big boys can make excessive profits from the monopsonistic market that minimum wages create. Another big problem with federal minimum wages is that they enact a blanket wage floor across the entire nation with no distinction from area to area. Someone that makes $15 in Manhattan would need to be working 60 hours a week just to pay rent, while someone in Mississippi could be living in a four-bedroom mansion on just half their income at that same wage. A two-person household could make the median income at just $11 an hour. $15 is clearly excessive in many parts of the country where you need much less to live a comfortable life. The solution, once again, lies in our federalist system. Politicians in Washington cannot legislate according to the unique situations faced by thousands and thousands of towns and cities across the country. There are certain areas where there is indeed a monopsonistic labor market, and a lack of competition has led to unfair wages. In such a scenario, minimum wages are necessary. In other, highly competitive markets, however, with an endless amount of employers, a minimum wage isn't needed at all. We have state and local governments for this exact reason. There needs to be a strict separation of federal, state, and local governments in terms of responsibility. When it comes to matters such as defense and national security, the federal government is key. However, in matters such as the minimum wage, the federal government has no business getting involved. Many that argue in favor of a minimum wage do so as a means of reducing economic inequality. They point to how the owner of a certain company makes millions, whilst the average employee can barely pay their bills. However, what this clearly ignores is the role of the owner in a business. It ignores the fact that business owners provide more than just the money. They actually create the company and deal with all the risks involved. If capital is all it took to create a successful business and to become wealthy, Everyone would do it because by and large, the one thing that business owners do not provide in this country is the capital. Rather, this is usually supplied by investors or a bank. Those who make the most money in a capitalist society designed a product or started a company that provided people with goods and services of great want or need. Additionally, they took all the risks and challenges in the business. A worker gets paid a fixed amount regardless of how the company fares. The capitalist, however, only gets what is left after the, all the workers have been paid. If a business does not make any profits, the owners get nothing. That is the reason why the owners are entitled to their millions and the workers are not. Abolishing the minimum wage is not an untested idea either. Several developed countries have no minimum wage and exploitation has not posed a threat whatsoever. 
Most Scandinavian countries, which are notable for their extremely left-leaning economic systems, do not have minimum wage laws. The vast majority of these countries' populations earn significantly higher wages than the American federal minimum wage, and the system has created strong unions that can maintain excellent wages without unnecessary government interference. We can see from these countries that collective bargaining is an excellent alternative to government interference. Whilst employees may not hold substantial bargaining power against their companies as individuals, they certainly do as collectives. The practice of forming unions to effectively negotiate for better wages goes back hundreds of years and is completely in line with a free market system. If workers genuinely believe that they are being exploited and that the company ought to pay them a higher wage, then there is nothing wrong with negotiating as a group. Employees negotiating for the highest possible pay is certainly more effective than the government mandating that all employers pay at least a certain wage, as the Scandinavian model has shown us. In a modern context, workers are often not the only option for employers. With technology improving, unskilled workers that perform repetitive jobs that do not require any creativity face the potential of being replaced by an automated device. By setting a minimum wage, we incentivize employers to find a cheaper solution to carry out the job. We've already seen this occur in the fast food industry, with cashiers becoming replaced by self-ordering kiosks. By forcing employers to pay employees more than the value they generate for the business, we are essentially forcing employers to look for alternate solutions thanks to modern technology. And thanks to modern technology, they may soon have one at their disposal for all, for all sorts of jobs. Despite its apparent flaws, the minimum wage concept continues to garner support, mainly due to a misinformed public. Again, the problem comes down to democracy. This is why politicians can propose such ridiculous policies and have massive support. If you're a worker earning the minimum wage, you would inevitably be inclined to vote for a politician who promises a minimum wage increase, regardless of such an idea's economic feasibility. To alleviate the misinformation problem that has led to the election of so many populist politicians, we need to understand what is being promised to us thoroughly to avoid getting trapped by these deplorable economic policies. A logical evaluation of policy proposals will be the first step in fixing America's problems. Depending on how knowledgeable the electorate is, democracy can either be a great strength or a terrible weakness. A population that is well-informed about public policy, evaluating the facts objectively, will be poised to elect officials that have the skills needed to fix the complex issues facing America today. On the other hand, a population that gets its information from pandering politicians trying to gather support by appealing to the people's emotions will inevitably elect officials that are only good at selling themselves rather than at accomplishing real results. Such a nation will be the cause of its own downfall in the long run. Thank you so much for tuning into the Economic Review. We'll be back soon with the latest.